So we're talking about objective truth. Yeah. And I read up a little bit on the sort of Hegelian approach to this topic. I don't know how much of it I understood. <laughs> yeah. But Hegel's I do rough. have opinions of my own. <laughs> um, literally, I was never really like a philosophy buff. But when I was in high school, I took this class called Art of Prediction. And it's about basically answering three questions like the whole class answers the questions what is history what is science and what is truth and so we talked a lot about Kant and Hegel um and how because Kant is like there is an objective truth and Hegel is like there is no objective truth (laughs) um because everyone perceives it differently and then Mm. the kind of like synthesis of both is there is an objective truth but no one perceives it Ah. (laughs) Um, because like your own experiences and like your own background play into how you perceive an event and are Um, inherently subjective exactly so you like for instance like the best way to talk about it is like you're talking about like a crime right like there's an armed robbery and you have three witnesses on the stand who all saw it But one of them says the guy was wearing a blue shirt. One says it was a purple shirt. One says it was a white shirt. And so the guy was wearing a certain color shirt. But Mm -hmm. it could have been light pink. And and so it could be coincidental that someone perceived it correctly, right? And that's a little bit more of like a fact-based thing. So like like in the sense that like it's color perception. But like going on from that like into like the bigger scope of things, right? Like there is an objective truth. No one's going to perceive it in the way that it exactly happened objectively because we all have our own like experiences and brains that influence how we perceive things Mm. well yeah and and going off of that example color is not an objective truth color is a qualia yeah (laughs) (laughs) what we describe as color is actually like a descriptor that counts on others having perceived color in the same way that we do yeah. <laughs> but objectively, people don't universally perceive color the same way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so color itself is not truth. It It is a, a qualia that describes our perception of that truth. Yeah. And then it also gets into, like, language and, like, how language just goes into, like, your perception of something and your perception of, like, color, for instance. If you don't yeah. have a word for, like, for us, like, we could say, like, light pink, but in, or, like, we have pink, but in another, like, language, it's light red. Huh. <laughs> I've even heard that get extended to taste. Like, I never really thought of flavors as being almost the way that colors can be, but they, I guess, are organized in combinations of different key flavors, right? Like salty, I think, and savory, different things like that. But there was one called umami. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's called that. I had never heard of that before, like this winter. And I I guess we don't even really have it a lot in this part of the world. So I was like, there's a fucking flavor, like a fundamental flavor that I've never experienced, had never heard of, but half the world knows exactly what it is and deals with it regularly. Yeah, It's crazy. I went my whole life just completely unaware, though. So that, that blew my mind, thinking how many other things could that apply to, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've heard that it's something that you go for when you're cooking with meat. Like yeah. Like it's a, re- it's a reason mm. to add meat to a dish or like to use animal fat in a dish or something like that. Yeah. Interesting. But even having said that, I have no idea what it actually means. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs>
Yeah, the description of it didn't sound like a thing that I wanted to taste. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I, I heard it in relation sense, to because you're a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I heard it. I think in relation to like sushi and maybe squid specifically. It had something yeah. to do with things like I just remember associating it with tentacles. So <laughs> I don't know. But I think it had something to do with the way that some types of fish and meats are prepared. Yeah, I think I've most often associated it with Japanese cuisine for some reason. Yeah. But I don't think it's at all specific to that either. Yeah, I vaguely remember like it was like on some like ads or something in the US in hmm. like the late 2000s. And that was like when I heard about it for the first time. And I like don't I they kind of made it seem like like, you know, the way that white Americans do, they make it seem like exotic or whatever, quote unquote, mm. um, because it's like not something that is like native to here. But that was really all that's like all I remember is like it's somewhere from the east. <laughs> yeah. And, and white people tried to make it feel, quote unquote, exotic. <laughs> but that kind of stuff makes me wonder if if we have tasted it in some capacity, but we don't have the context to say, oh, that's this specific taste. So we just consider it like different variations of other flavors like oh it's a little salty it's a little sweet it's, so we just say it's like salty or sweet or whatever and maybe that can apply to other like our objectivity and, and subjectivity of different topics like if we don't have the specific tools to label them the way that they are or to perceive them the way that they are we just kind of make them our own thing and then it becomes telephone from there you know it's just yeah yeah, and you can only perceive something based on the context that you have. So if there's something like that's why like um when like we started having more like aircrafts and stuff, a lot of people were perceiving it as UFOs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like they didn't know that like the government was like starting to manufacture aircrafts and then stuff was flying around. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, "What's going on?" <laughs> <laughs> Cuz it's the way that we reason, you know? It's like we jump off from what we know and we make the the picture as full as we can with what we have available to us and when things come completely below that paradigm out of the water it changes everything that you know about the world and i think yeah. that's cool as hell but it <laughs> makes the idea of something like truth seem a little sketchy yeah when you sort of apply those same uh measures to it yeah it's like i remember watching that movie what the bleep do we know you ever heard of that I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it um, okay, or know either. what it's about, but I've like heard the name. <laughs> it's a movie that came out, I think, in the early 2000s. I, I think it was this movie. It, it had some segment in it that was talking about what the Native Americans must have seen or thought they were seeing when like the first ships came to the Americas, you know, and like seeing big, huge wooden ships with white, puffy sails. And like, how could those not have registered as clouds? And like, you know, yeah. what, because that's the only thing that should be moving through the sky at a speed that's white and so tall above your head. And for anyone to establish just in that moment with no frame of reference, what the truth is surrounding that experience is impossible. And you could al almost not call it truth, but their lived experience of having that moment and learning that thing and perceiving that way is truth to them, but is not necessarily a universal truth yeah and that's kind of why like the study of history is considered like a hegelian field because there is no like when you think about like for instance in the time of like alexander the great right we are well past the time that we would have any sort of semblance of what the objective truth was and i actually in a class taught by the same teacher as um this art of prediction class i took i took a class about alexander the great and we did like we had a project where we had to pick an event that we know happened 
Um, for instance, this dude named Callisthenes, he died. And then we had to read every single historian's account of it and try to deduce what we think happened and come up with our own, like, theory or our own truth of, like, what happened. Um, we don't know. We don't know why Callisthenes died. I don't know if we know who killed him, but trying to, like, go through that and, like, figuring it out, like, hi like history, when you work as a historian, that's what you're doing, um, is, mm. like, going through everyone's different account of what happened and then trying to figure out somewhere in between the lines what actually happened. Mm. Um, so history is, like, very much a Hegelian field, and then when you look at, like, science, that's, like, your Kant field, because, like, science deals with, like, more of, like, the objective truth, quote-unquote. So mm. then you get the yeah. synthesis of the two, which for me is, like, lived experience. <laughs> and, like, yeah. that's, and, like, trying to, like, understand that something did happen, but you'll never perceive it exactly how it happened. <laughs> yeah, so objective truth is very hard to nail down. Um, and possibly cannot be perceived by us at all. What about universal truth? Mm. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I feel like, because universal truth is kind of like goes into Kant a little bit as well, but like uh, universal truth is like things that we accept to be true, like in the sense that like we accept that we are all humans, right? Like that's science mm. has said that. And we have accepted that we trust science and that even though, like, if you really want to get big brain, nothing is real in science. Like, it's just making great hypotheses and nothing is true. Like, yeah. but, but, like, we want, like, we accept that all of the people involved who needed to identify us as humans identify us as humans. And that is some, that is a generally, like, universal accepted truth. And it's, like, I think it's kind of what society, like, universal society and, like, collective consciousness have, like, deemed agreeable. There's very few things mm. that are like that. But, mm. like, we are humans. We have blood. Like, those are things that are, like, accepted truths. <laughs> well, yeah. I like the idea of a universal truth more than an objective truth, to be honest, too. Because I, I think too. it accounts for the human error. Like, we can definitely agree that this is, on average, the accepted premise of whatever argument we're trying to have and then that gives us a sense of like this is just as far as we've gotten but this we can all kind of agree on let's keep going as opposed to objective truth makes it seem like we are trying to reach into those essences which i have trouble with sometimes just because it takes it back to the subjectivity it's like well my perception of that objective thing could be entirely different from the guy next to me and there's no way of really proving that empirically and it's it just feels presumptuous to me to say that I've reached into the heavens and I've gotten this <laughs> this celestial idea of what, what some noun is or something and what the hell gives me the right, you know? And what makes the fact that someone else said that to me or that I read it in a book true. But the idea of a universal tru truth gives you something to work with and something to chew on and something to potentially tear down and re rebuild and see if it checks out, you know? I think that's just more useful for the intentions of what these discussions usually are like built on mm. yeah it kind of like gives us like a given circumstance yeah. like if you're like playing a video game right and like your character is left-handed 
Mm. That's your given circumstance. Your character is like shoots a gun in their left hand or what? I don't know. I don't play video games. <laughs> like <laughs> whatever it is, your character is like better at doing things in their left hand. That's yeah. your given circumstance, and you work around it. So we've accepted that like we are humans. We have blood. Those are the given circumstances, mm. and then everything else from there. You kind of have this this baseline of like even if this isn't true, we've accepted that it is. Mm. Like mm. this is for our definition of what truth is. This is it. We've proven it empirically, quote unquote, yeah. which yeah. also, you know, what's that? But like, yeah. <laughs> um, but like with the way that we have decided to, you know, figure things out globally, we've accepted that these are our given circumstances. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing just because humans are so subjective and, and so fallible that at least it means that for a split second, we're all working with the same materials you know like i always think about like the scientific method in that sense like it can take you anywhere and it can be flawed or it can be successful and, and great it can lead to progress it can lead to things that get torn down whatever but all that it really says is that for like these six steps or however many it, this is we agree this is you got to do this briefly and then it at least gives people a sense of what they need to shoot at if it's not looking good or why it might be true if it is it just lets you build on things it provides for like that shared bit of language which will again splinter off and become subjective as soon as it hits the masses but i think that's important because it's the one thing we've learned about ourselves as <laughs> as people over time is just that like shit will fall apart every so often <laughs> yeah i mean i've made this point i've kind of done it to death but like that's why i believe that metaphor works so well and is like one of the only potentially universal forms of communication. But I've made the point many times that universal truth is the precedent for why metaphor works and why in any great piece of art, metaphor is what speaks to us the most. Because we all have different ways of like applying what we hear in that metaphor to our specific subjective experience to the particulars around our lives and what we might relate that to. But the use of metaphor in art assumes that it will be received that way, assumes that it is a generality directed at some kind of experience that the other must have had. But that's why I'm very interested in disambiguating universal from objective, because I don't believe that there is objective truth. I do very much believe that we all have universal generalities about us that allow us to be receptive to metaphor. Mm. Yeah. And I think like the human experience as well, like just like living as a human, that's a commonality between everybody. And so... I think like and that's why like music can be so powerful is because you've got like this song that's about your very specific thing or like a story that you made up that's very specific but people can like resonate with that like so much and feel like it's about them and about their life mm -hmm. even though it absolutely is not <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i've heard that argument made a lot like that specificity is not the enemy of metaphor specificity is like is not the enemy of universality. Like it actually is kind of received better sometimes if it is um, a more specific experience that you're writing about. And for some reason, people seem to resonate with that more. Maybe I'm just uncomfortable writing about my own experience. 
So I'll use metaphor more often or I'll use vagueness more often. Well, I think like for me, like I kind of oscillate between very specific and very vague. Um, and sometimes I write things that are not my own like personal experience, mm -hmm. um, but they are still wildly specific. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that like, with like the intention of like your music and like what you want that song to be you know like if you want like i have a song that like it's intentionally really vague but it has some specifics about a specific person and the, they know i think even though maybe i like didn't tell them they know the songs about them <laughs> um <laughs> it was a nice bombshell to drop at a show that they were at <laughs> it's a nice song but like a fun little bombshell for them <laughs> um but when you drop in specificity even like even with something that's generally vague it's kind of like it just creates more of that like oh like i feel this like really deeply in my soul yeah. i relate to this like even if it's not exactly your experience but it's just like oh that is so similar to something that i've felt and i've lived through or mm. i've lived through that in not a heartbreak context but i lived through it in this context or something like that mm. Yeah, it takes some of the, the work out of it as a listener, you know? Like, you don't have to kind of parse through an abstraction. You can just immediately bang into a reference point that you're familiar with and just start extrapolating and relating and, and moving your own emotions around in cor accordingly. And that's... It's always, like, a little bit more poignant that way. I, I think it's why a lot of people don't necessarily always get into poetry. Like, a lot of, like, mainstream society doesn't totally resonate with things like that because it just requires you to live in it in a lot of cases and like think about it a lot whereas you get something that's just specific and you hit someone over the head with it in a pop song <laughs> and it's going to be effective like they're gonna feel something and that's just always gonna be like oh shit it just rockets you there yeah mm. they both kind of end up in the same place they just take different paths yeah and i think like another form that like does that well like going between like both is theater because like you can have like some of the most like impressionistic theater that is so vague and it resonates so well and then you'll also have like a very blatant here is a thing that happened and i want you to be empathetic to it yeah. yes <laughs> and people are yeah <laughs> and they're two very different means of attaining the same goal um because theater like everyone says like it holds a mirror up to society and like mm -hmm. whatever and holds a mirror up to the universe and but specifically society and like human experience and human connection and it can it can take so many different forms but ultimately it all kind of does the same thing so i got a two-potter here if i try to remember it because <laughs> I, I came up with it a few minutes ago but what do you think the purpose of truth is and then do you think truth exists independently of that purpose? Ooh, I like it, Matt. <laughs> I love the question. I don't know if my brain loves it so much. <laughs> I don't have an answer either, so this is just like a... Let's see. So wait, wait. What's the purpose of truth, and does truth exist independently of that purpose? Yeah, if we have something called objective or universal truth, what's the function? Why are we trying so hard to find it? And would it exist without that purpose? Okay. I feel like kind of the same thing that we talked about a little bit before, like that need for like given circumstance and stuff. Like that's like the purpose I feel of truth is like to try to have some concrete way to explain what you're perceiving, 
I think, and like trying to see if you're perceiving things correctly, I guess. Um, I don't know. It doesn't quite answer your question, but those are my like initial knee-jerk plankton level thoughts (laughs) 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 to get us going somewhere. (laughs) No, that's, you know, it's a good point. Um, Like, is the purpose of truth ethos? Is the purpose of truth societal agreement? Or like an agreement of perception or an agreement uh, an agreement to a set of concessions to be made in order to live together in relative harmony i think that that's often the purpose behind labeling things as true well and i think that's why people can get so impassioned about like their religion or spiritual beliefs and stuff like yes. that and like that's why we fight wars about religion yeah um, I think that that's like definitely a big part of it is it's like we're trying to pick a rule or like a guidebook of like concessions to make when really there are isn't one <laughs> um, like there isn't one that works for everyone. But that's what yeah. we're I think trying to do. And whether that's through, you know, existentialism, Christianity <laughs> um, or like or, you know, anything else like. But then does truth exist apart from the need to agree on truth? Um, uh, <laughs> well, that actually makes me think of a third part for that. Okay. Does, can truth exist with only one person? Like, does truth require a second, third, fourth, whatever party? Okay. Would Christ. it just be an action without it? Like, if you chop down a tree in a forest and yep. no one was around to hear it, did you just chop down the tree... Or when somebody else comes up and says, the hell you did, now all of a sudden this this void opens up. Does truth that occupy guy. that void? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're still the one with the axe, so it's right that fucking doctrine. But, you know, it's like, was it true or untrue before that guy arrived? Or is truth only going to exist in that gap between, fuck you, that didn't happen, and yeah, it did? Well, first of all... <laughs> The adage is if a tree falls and no one's there to hear it. No, nah, I was there, dude. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> if if you yourself cut down a tree, verifiably you cut down that tree. Yeah. <laughs> but is it true? Because it's not referenced against anything. I just did it. You know, I just I so been what? dreaming it. Well, maybe, but it's referenced against the tree was initially standing. So then it can record, it can exist in a vacuum then. But even that's not like recorded, it's not recorded by anybody else's perception other than your own. Yeah. You know, so like without a camera or a second person, was that tree standing and is it now felled? So would that make it entirely subjective, like almost purely subjective or objective? The hypothetical person in this scenario would just be driven mad by these questions were yes, they but... to occur to them. So it wouldn't matter. Yeah. His perception would be that tree fell on him and was sentient and animated only moments ago. And... So, okay, to the, to the solitary human... Is the question, can there be any such thing as a valid truth to one person with no observer to affirm what that truth is? Essentially, yeah. It's like if if truth is about finding 
effectively that commonality, like that that thing that we can agree on or that thing that sort of creates the cohesion. What if you remove the community or the people with which you want to have that cohesion? Is it still truth or is it just action? Is it something else? Is truth required of that situation? That also begs the question, though, what if like this guy goes and cuts down the tree and no one sees it, no one sees any evidence of it, but he talks about cutting down the tree to somebody else? so then there's still that sense of community and it's it's still being treated like it happened Mm. like this a person would have to live in complete isolation for us to truly be able and be unaware of being like watched (laughs) for us to truly be able to like figure out like i guess like the a more solid answer to that question because there's always going to be a sense of community Mm. even if it's not immediate yeah so I get. I mean, it's going to be more of a theoretical, no matter what, you know. But, yeah. Well, yeah. No, but like even still. Yeah. <laughs> no, because I'm trying to basically separate the tenets of that as best I can. Like, truth being something that exists in between anything is that required of it, or does that just happen a lot? I don't know if that's even important. It just occurred to me over the course of say that talking again. about the other two. Like, basically, does truth need a synapse to occupy? Mm. I think that kind of like, this might not make any sense, so bear with me. Um, (laughs) But like when we're thinking about, for instance, like space exploration, right? Like Mm. we're aware things are happening, but we're not aware what things are happening. Mm. So does that make the supernova that happened seven light years away any like happen less? Like, right? Like, does that make it not happen because we're not aware that it happened? Like, no, the universe is functioning independently of humans in the sense that there's shit happening up in the sky or down in the ocean that mm. we're unaware of. Um, end point. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know where that can go, but there's a thought. <laughs> well, weren't we just talking about who, who was the name of the guy... You were talking about Alexander the Great, and there was someone who died. Oh, Callisthenes. Callisthenes. That kind of goes back to, like, we don't know how he died, who killed him, or whether he was killed. So does it matter? Does it matter to history whether or not he was murdered or died in battle or or died, you know, any more than it matters whether (laughs) this motherfucker (laughs) cut down his own tree? And I suppose, I guess there's that, like, we want history to be objective truth. Mm. We have a desire for it to be. And I wonder if it would follow that we desire for our own truth to be objective. I guess if we are living true to ourselves, we want other people to see how we're living. We, we want their perception of us to be at least accurate to how we'd like to be seen and not mired in their preconceptions of us, which would be subjective. You know what I mean? So I actually think that objective versus subjective truth when talking about self-image and self-identity is something that we haven't covered yet. Because mm. I think that even our self-image is never going to be objective. Like there is an objective truth about us, I suppose. But can we ever actually know it? Like th- there's an objective truth as far as, you know, which events in our lives have influenced us to become the people we are, what has shaped us the most, 
what has nurtured us the most. What <laughs> I even have been struggling this with a lot, like over the course of the quarantine. It's like, what actually are my values? And it yeah. bothers me that there's no way for me to objectively know like what my values are supposed to be based on what I've experienced thus far in life. And like, I don't have any database that can just tell me what is most important to me and what kind of person does it matter that I become or continue being. Have you had those moments where you feel as though you've been on autopilot for years? Yeah. And now you're like, oh, fuck, I have to figure it out all over again. Yeah, like it's yeah. kind of, A lot of the quarantine has been that kind of experience for me. So it's just it's it can be maddening that like there's no way to know for sure who you are or what has had any kind of measurable effect on you or what will be the best way to act moving forward with your life in order to keep true to those values. And when other people see you, do they see those values in you? Or do they see something completely different that might agree with a more tenable path for you? Mm. Well, and there you kind of get to like the human desire to control the narrative a mm. little bit. If your self-concept, regardless of whether or not it's desirable to you, you want other people to see you in a way that is desirable to you. Mm -hmm. And you want to control that narrative so that people see you in a way that aligns with your values and in a way that like that is the person that you want to be, regardless of whether or not that's the person you are. Yeah. And so then it's like, what is actually because then their perception of you, even if you're controlling the narrative, is nowhere near an objective perception of you. Or like an obje obje objective truth about you. So truth is just safety in that sense. You know, it's like security. It's like we're just looking for some degree of certainty that the ground isn't going to fall out from under us. Like, it's like we're born at sea and we just want there to be land so fucking badly. What that means that any truth could be a truth that we choose to believe. Which is why we have some of the issues that we have right now. <laughs> <laughs> What I was going to say is as far as like wanting your uh, wanting to know your own objective truth um, or wanting to know what is true of you and wanting others to see what is true of you the way that you perceive what is true of you. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, there is like <laughs> I think I think about like noticing that you've evolved as a person uh, or making an active effort to evolve as a person. To evolve empathetically, compassionately, ideologically, idealistically, wanting other people to see that in you. And I think like as far as self-image stuff goes, like that's where that really gets murky because it can be really hard to know how to like reconcile who you are now with who your past self was and will the people who knew you in the past see you as who as the person you want to be seen as. Is the perceived truth of people who were involved in your life in the past that you are this person and will always be? Is the perceived truth of the people around you that you have changed for the better? Is the perceived truth of your family that you belong no matter what? That kind of stuff. So I think we, we really occupy ourselves, at least I occupy myself a lot with what other people's truths are in relation to me and how I kind of fit into their personal ethos. Mm. 
And as we said, like truth can exist in an ethos as an agreement within an ethos. And do I agree with enough of other people's lives? Do Is there enough of an agreement between me and others for us to exist harmoniously? So when you're looking at truth as an agreement, I think oftentimes it is. You then are begging the question, well, is truth so subjective that we can never really exist harmoniously? Mm. Is truth so subjective that we will never fully agree on our experiences and the moral code of conduct necessary to exist harmoniously and so forth? I had something else to say, but we are well past that. <laughs> like we've moved past it. Um, <laughs> that question threw me for a loop. Oh my god! <laughs> I, I'm I'm speaking to the most insecure people right now, and like I'm I'm speaking to my insecure brothers and sisters who have a really hard time accepting that they are seen as members of that agreement members of a societal or a, a com communal agreement. Well, I think in like a micro way, it's definitely possible. I don't know if necessarily universally, but like when you think about things like gender and like gender presentation, right? Like I identify as non-binary. If people actively choose to disagree with the fact that I am non-binary, we cannot exist in the same, like we can't exist harmoniously. Yeah. We can't exist in the same like, sphere but ultimately i'm the one that decides if that's important to me you know if someone wants to disagree that like i have like brown eyes like that doesn't matter to me as much <laughs> like <laughs> like <laughs> i don't know what you see that's different but like sure right like that's not like an integral part to who i am as a person but like my identity is that's a really good way of explaining to somebody how ridiculous it is to take a stand against someone else's identity. If you just yeah. swap out identity with like hair color yeah. or eyes, and it just sounds like a fucking insane premise for an argument. That's pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but then also that also ties back to the whole wanting to control the narrative thing. Yeah. And like when you're in a society where like people normally don't perceive me in the way that I present as non-binary, because also what the fuck is non-binary presentation? What the fuck does that look like? Um, but like there isn't. Um, well, I have, no a, I have a question like. about that, actually. Yeah. So we were talking about like a couple months ago, like the concept of masculinity and femininity and the concept of gender and how... For people who identify as male, there is a maleness associated to it. I don't know whether you want to call that masculinity, because oftentimes it doesn't feel the same as masculinity, but there is like a maleness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I assume the same thing would go for people who identify as female. For a non-binary person, is there a a conceptual theyness? <laughs> do you know? Conceptual theyness. Do you know what I mean, though? <laughs> Yeah, um, I think, like, there is, but, like, with your conceptual, like, maleness and your conceptual femaleness, it's, like, not correct or accurate. Okay. I think, like, a lot of people, when they think of a non-binary person, and it's, like, it's a collective consciousness kind of thing, um, people who are aware that non-binary people exist, they normally think of a white, androgynous, assigned female at birth person. Mm-hmm. 
oftentimes with dyed hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but not always, but oftentimes <laughs> with dyed hair. Like, um, there's someone that you look at and you can't tell what gender they were assigned at birth. But oftentimes what, like, they're thinking of is a transmasculine person. That's just, like, what, um, as non-binary folks, a lot of us have started to notice that trend, is that it tends to be transmasculine folks that, like, are ascribed as, like, the they. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. Um, but with non-binary identity, there's not that same kind of societal, like, maleness, femaleness, non-binary-ness, because people, A, haven't agreed upon the, like, quote-unquote truth that non-binary people exist. You know, we've talked about the subject sure. of the truth and all of that, but that's not an accepted term. It's not an accepted given circumstance that the non-binary experience and non-binary people exist. And I think, like, until we have a society that truly accepts non-binary people and all of the genders that fall under that umbrella, I don't think that there would be, like, that kind of, like, feeling of they-ness in the way that, like, because society just has such a heavy hand, we're not there in society yet to, to I think, be asking that, not to be asking that question, but to be looking for, like, an answer to that question, because I just don't think that it's, an unfortunately, an accepted enough concept. Hmm. It's not treated as truth. That's a very good point. Can there be a concept around a truth that is not yet accepted as a truth? <laughs> and I guess that goes back to Matt's earlier question on what is the purpose of it and doesn't exist independent of that purpose. Well, that's what I meant by the tree bullshit, too. <laughs> Was like, if I chop down that thing, do I? does it let off into the atmosphere an object of truth to go live in the land of essences? which is then reconciled or not reconciled against other human beings once I start to interact with them about that. Well, it's like, cause it's like, does the event exist independently of anyone's perception of it? Kind of is like that. Like yeah, the event, yeah. did the event happen if no one perceived it? Yeah. Cause it also, it dovetails well, you perceive the idea it. of psychosis. <laughs> or do I? <laughs> well, if you perceive it as like, it animating and falling on you. Right? Like, <laughs> I like your perception of it, Joel, better than my perception of it. That this animated tree is coming down like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> I do like no, that. I, I mean, okay. The... <laughs> that was an example of your perception being valid unless you doubt your perception, in which case, perhaps that's going to drive you mad. Yeah. But so the question is, does the event still happen regardless of your perception? Like, so if you perceived it as the tree animating and, like, attacking you, when in reality, like, in an objective truth reality, where a tree falls, did the event still happen? Like, a tree fell, but you perceived it as it animating and attacking you, right? Like, it's like the supernova that happened seven light years away. No one's aware yeah. of it. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. Mm. If the tree falls, but you perceived it as the, as the tree attacking you, does that change the fact that the tree was actually just falling? No. But then if there's somebody else who comes along who can verify that you're the one who cut down the tree, who's to say that their perception of your cutting down the tree is any more valid than your own? 
And this is why lawyers have a hard time in court with witnesses. <laughs> That's right. Memory, very fallible testimony. Perception, fallible. Memory, even worse. Memory, not admissible evidence. <laughs> well, how about this? Though? What if, I mean, and let me know if this is getting too, like, fucking pointless for this analogy. But if, um, say that you cut down that tree and you obviously go insane as a result. Sure. And, you know, just because you thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the reason I don't live in a rural area. Um, <laughs> I know who I am. Okay. But yeah. So you go nuts. You cut down this thing. You can't get it through your head the right way. And you have either some form of a psychotic break or you take drugs or something, but you're in complete isolation and you have a hallucinogenic experience that gives you something that is effectively your reality for the next 12 to 18 hours or whatever. And now we're talking. Then you, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but maybe on some level, you don't necessarily know. Like you don't have that sort of snapback that society will give you when you have a psychotic break or something and they sort of tell you, hey, that chunk doesn't jibe with what we're experiencing here. And they sort of medicate you or move you back to where everybody else is. If you don't have that and you come back to society and say, I cut down this tree and then I cut down a thousand fucking trees in like an hour. <laughs> I mean, it would sound ridiculous, but if that was so 100% true to you, just the way that cutting down that single tree was, and you have nobody to verify it against. Have you ever thought of no writing fables? <laughs> <laughs> Matt's <Okay>. profane fables. <laughs> Volume one. <laughs> yeah, Aesop would have done good with a little bit of swearing in there. Uh, okay, so the. <sighs> I mean, it gets to be a ridiculous example, but you know what I mean? Like, if that was 100% true to you and you have no reference point to verify it as false. No, I against... do. I do know what you mean. And, and like, the, this is why, like, ayahuasca experiences are so utilized and and valid as like mm. a, a way of of healing because like a, a hallucinated experience that nonetheless regardless of being physically real still happened to you mm -hmm. yeah oh what was that what was that sartre quote the one that i sent you yeah uh freedom is what you do with what's been done to you yeah 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 so Regardless of it being physically real, regardless of whether there are a thousand trees missing from the forest <laughs> <laughs> that are conspicuously still there, uh, <laughs> still standing, um, it is still your lived and felt experience. Yeah. That you hallucinated a thing and it was still like it, it doesn't take away any elements of the hero's journey that it didn't happen to you in real life. If you experienced it and remember it and it mm -hmm. affected you in some way, psychologically. Yeah. And you are now living with the ramifications of that experience. It is still a true experience. It may mm -hmm. not be true that there are now a thousand felled trees but it's yeah. still true that you cut down a thousand trees. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that also kind of like when you go into like people who have like mental illnesses that deal with hallucination as well, like their experiences with hallucination doesn't make it any less real for them. Right. Just because yeah. like 
you don't have like just because i can't see what you're seeing doesn't mean that that like that for you there is not someone in the corner Mm, and like and that affects you and your interactions with that figure in the corner affect you and are real for you yeah and like i think that that's like as an important thing when you're talking about like truth and whatever as well as like and that's kind of what you talk about in therapy is like your lived experience regardless of what's happening in the world around you your lived experience is real valid and it's your truth And this also goes back to the agreement and ethos thing where like, you know, in let's say like the Native American culture of old, I don't know if this is still practice, but like, um, like the sun dance, standing in the sun all day, the deprivation of food, you have a vision to claim that truth needs the verification from a second party would be to discount the experiences and, and the visions that were the foundations of an entire culture. You know, we're the foundations of myth and the foundations of belief and the foundations of unity. So, like, then we're looking at a tradition that was built upon the necessity of subjective but accepted truth. Subjective but agreed upon. And that kind of goes back to what we're talking about, about why, like, why when you're talking about philosophy, it's important to include theism. Because there's so much, like, spirituality and religion that... (sighs) those things can um get bless you mom <laughs> there, there's so <laughs> there's so much spirituality and religion in which those things like absolutely do can and do coexist um ah that point that i forgot an hour ago it's back <laughs> hey it's, um, that in the united states because it's we're very christian focused it's very easy to forget that like there are religions that have completely different foundational beliefs like in different accepted truths um, yeah about and different philosophies and like where existentialism and theism can completely coexist whereas like when you look at it from a guise of like christianity those things absolutely can't coexist right yeah that was the point from earlier but it's relevant again i'm so glad that i remember yeah it. <laughs> yeah no we've, we've talked about this before matt and i we we, we taped an episode about the concept of fundamentalism and it's kind of like you know for in in the realm of fundamentalist christianity no those other ideologies those other traditions cannot exist in more of a new age christianity it can mm-hmm. there's more coexistence <laughs> and i was saying that like i've i feel like i'm becoming more of uh, less of a spiritual person and more of an anti-fundamentalist where like I just kind of crave knowledge and I want to know what other people believe and how other people perceive, but I'm not necessarily interested in chasing their experiences for myself. I relate to that. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm totally, I'm, I'm, well, I'm getting more okay with it because it goes back to the self-image thing. It goes back to like, do I want to be perceived as somebody who's capable of having those experiences? Because that's kind of what I was raised to do, or at least was raised to experience the spiritual but if I can't experience the spiritual, is that okay as well? And can I accept that other people will necessarily need to then see me as somebody who cannot experience their spiritual? So, I don't know. There's a lot to that. We don't have to get into that. But <laughs> spiritual truth is kind of the one that I've been trying to let go. 
like I've kind of been searching for my own spiritual truth for a long time. And I think I've kind of, I don't want, I don't want to say that I've given up. There's a, there's a line in, in the book Siddhartha, which I'm just about done with right now. We're going to be doing like a, a book club with it soon. There's a line in Siddhartha about like, if you're a seeker, you will always be a seeker because you'll never find the thing that you're seeking. <laughs> yeah. Or like you'll be so fixated on the thing that you're seeking, like which you perceive as a truth, but it is not yet an observable truth and you're trying to observe it. But until you observe it, it's just going to be the object of desire and it's going to be the one thing that you can never find. And why not kind of redefine how we perceive truth and how we allow truth to dictate our path? Well, that's why I like the idea of the universal as opposed to the objective, because it seems more mutable. Yeah. Well, and like we can see like throughout history how universal truths have changed and they're yeah. not stagnant. They're always able, like they're always changing and are a little bit more fluid. And I think, unfortunately, capitalism kind of breeds this. There's this desire for like rigidity and like stagnant like beliefs so that you're able to function the same all the time and do mm. your job the same all the time and whatever when in all actuality everything changes all the time and our brains our, our perception of ourselves our perceptions of the world are in a constant state of motion nothing is stagnant mm -hmm. um and i think that like having a universal truth creates so much more freedom for that whereas if you try to talk about objective truth it's like well who's it objective to well I suppose the idea of objective means it's supposed to be universal, you know, universally objective. But then, but then, like, like for me, I can't get there because I'm like, well, then how, right? Like, how are we? Because nothing is objective because everything is an established and accepted truth. <laughs> like, <laughs> we every everything's a construct. <laughs> um, like. <laughs> <laughs> So would the absence of an objective truth be an objective truth? Ooh. Or be the only objective truth? Well, but we also, we we have accepted that there is no objective truth based on the methods and our concepts that we have and the context that we have. Yeah. So I would say, no, it's a universal truth. No, I agree. Yeah. Because we okay. don't truly know that there's no objective truth, right? Like, it's, yeah. And I think for me, like, part of it, coming like growing up and like especially after taking this damn class in high school i like decided that like there's a lot that i'm just okay with like accepting and not thinking about sure yeah. one of those things being that mutual exclusivity doesn't exist that for me is an accepted truth and i will never think about it again mm, like yeah mutual exclusivity for me doesn't exist things can coexist at the same time and i don't need to know why or how sure and i'm cool with that and there could be an objective truth. I'm cool with not knowing if there is or not. Which is interesting coming from someone who's an atheist and not agnostic. <laughs> mm. um. Well, yeah, but I mean, this, it, uh, you know, another question that's been done to death. You know, what came before the Big Bang is essentially the same question as where did God come from? Something can't come from nothing. So... Either way, you're still left with this giant mystery. And for some people, it becomes a crisis trying to figure it out. But it's interesting going back to like the Kantian argument about like there is objective truth, but no one perceives it. Like no human can know it. Mm. Can we then assume that if there is a God, 
God is the only one who knows what objective truth is. I would feel like yes. Or like God or like whoever your judgment person is, like your judgment deity or your judgment being. Like whoever is your judge, not necessarily your jury and your executioner, but your judge and maybe your jury, right? Like whoever they are for you. They could be, you know, the people who see the objective truth, which would explain why, you know, like Christians feel that like I need to do X, Y, and Z good things so I look good in the eyes of God. Sure. Mm. Yeah. And then there's the question of why does God care (laughs) about what those objective truths are, you know, because (laughs) what are we, uh, what does God gain from that? I'm not saying that it does or doesn't check out that way either, but sometimes when I think about a lot of these, the values and things that constitute what ultimately get labeled as objective truths, they they really do nothing more than govern our society. You mm-hmm. know, they keep us from killing one another. They keep us from letting people start, or, you know, supposedly in a lot of cases, yeah. they keep us from killing one another or keep us from letting an innocent person starve or whatever we're afraid of happening to our species during our lifetime is what a lot of these objective truths apply to, or they account for a fear of an unknown like death. Yeah. So who would need them besides us? Well, let me make this point. If there's a God, does he see you cut down those thousand trees? (laughs) (laughs) Well, because, Uh, yeah, because if you don't have, if you, if essence is over existence and there's like destiny, right? For instance, mm-hmm, God mm-hmm. allowed or gave or your deity allowed or gave you the hallucination that you cut down a thousand trees. Mm. Yeah. Because they wanted you to live that experience regardless of whether or not someone watched you do it and there are a thousand trees missing. Okay. Yeah. So answer me this. <laughs> like 7,000 years ago did some guy create God just because he wanted bragging rights <laughs> no He's one like, saw you do I it this great idea. no yeah, one saw I mean... you do it man no there is one who saw <laughs> well... <laughs> the eye in the sky <laughs> <laughs> big brother <laughs> well and i think like mythology and religion and all of that like is created to explain and i think like we were saying like to protect um and to protect each other and i think that you know some people don't have inherent morals or inherent values which is not necessarily that's not a bad thing like yeah. you're a blank slate like that's and then it's about uh, it's up to society or up to your religion or whatever to instill that in you because like some like my mom instilled it to me from birth some people don't have that but i think like for some people they don't have that kind of like moral or like value-based compass so they look to mythology and or religion yeah and or to explain and to give them like that guidebook and I think, like, when you study, like, ancient religion, that's kind of what a lot of it is. It's a guidebook. It's it's a warning mm-hmm. of, like, here, if you go, you know, do this thing, you're going to get picked apart by birds for the rest of eternity down with Hades, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it creates, like, a way to, like, I think, like, what Matt was saying, like, preserve humanity in a way and try to, like, 
give people some sort of moral or value compass, because clearly people needed one at the time. I like that a lot. And like, as somebody, like, I like to believe in universal truth wherever I can find it, but I don't believe in universal morality. Mm. Like, I don't believe that that's kind of where I find, like, that's why literature, I find literature so valuable, um, mythology being a part of literature. Like, you can look at the history of the human experience or the history of the perception, the many varied perceptions of the human experience. See, well, how is this handled in such and such a society? How is this handled in such and such a fable? What can we learn from what has been documented? And I don't necessarily think that there should be any, like, universal punishment for something and I don't think that certain things should universally be crimes but we seem to have built up like a system by which we can call certain things true because we agree on them for the sake of living in an ethos together in harmony what about lies What about them, Matt? <laughs> I mean, is it possible to have an objective lie or like a pure, like like an antimatter kind of a thing? Like you create an objective truth and there's instantly an objective lie or a thousand objective lies that shoot off from it. You know that whole, is it a string theory thing where like everything that you imagine creates like there's like two universes that exist oh the multiverse where that was theory. a reality yeah is that first of all is that a real thing or is that i mean obviously it's like not completely proven but i just remember reading about that one time but I, it's a real theory i think stephen hawking him maybe mm, i'm not good yeah. with names of people important um somebody <laughs> talked about the multiverse theory. And the reason mm. that I remember this, I believe it was Stephen Hawking, was in 2014, mm. he was quoted as saying, there is in fact a universe in which Zane did not leave One Direction. And, <laughs> <laughs> which is like, <laughs> very stupid, but was his way of pandering and making the multiverse theory palatable to a younger audience. <laughs> That's very interesting. <laughs> so, I mean, I just, could it like, could lie fall to objectivity at all? Or does, do lies remain subjective? Because it just makes me wonder, like if truth can hit that fork in the road and go whichever way, or if we have more control over truth, what does that make a lie? Hmm. Is the lie just the absence of that truth or like an inability to accept or a refusal to accept it and to do something else? Is that all a lie is? Like, is it an absence of that structure or is a lie its own thing? I feel like it kind of connects to the community thing again, though, in a, in a way, like, it's easy to lie about stuff no one saw. Mm. And that, like, if you, like, you know, it's easy to lie and say, I showered today. Neither would but if you, no one saw it, is know. it a lie? Well, but yeah. I perceive it. <laughs> so I know that, like, I know whether or not said thing actually happened in my experience. Okay, yeah. Like, so if mm. I told you that I got up and showered this morning, neither of you would know whether or not that was true. Yeah. But because I'm telling you it happened, you can assume, and I have credibility with y'all, you can assume that I probably did do that. Or I assume I have credibility with y'all. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, you know, if I lived with you and I said, I got up and showered this morning and you were like, I did not hear the water. You weren't even awake this morning. You woke up at 2 p.m. 
that's then I'd be you'd catch me in a lie because as a community that's not in our our accepted given circumstance mm-hmm. because I told you something and you witnessed it not happening. Matt, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> it gets real complicated when you start lying to yourself though <laughs> yeah well no i just i kind of just find that interesting sometimes like i don't know that it leads anywhere productive but just the idea that like truth is talked about as an objective not like an objective like an objective truth but like it's an objective of people like we want to reach the truth there's so much shit written about wanting to like find the truth or uncover the truth and there's always a part of me that's like, we operate way more in the lying universe than in the truthing universe most of the time. Like so much of life is constituted by like just lies that kind of fit together. And like, you know, are lies significant in any way or like in the same way that truth can be, or are they just kind of what we're trying to organize or what we're trying to prevent or protect ourselves from? Yeah. I think sometimes this can get back into the realm of, you know, are you establishing your own truth? And in doing so, are you denouncing your own lies? Or are you labeling certain things as as lies? I'm getting back to the mm. self-image thing. Just thinking about, like, how you perceive yourself. Well, we all kind of have these negative things that will apply to ourselves when we're, we're feeling insecure or whatever. But, like, it's, it's kind of up to us whether we determine those to be truth or lies. Mm. And it's up to us whether we project that truth or that falsehood onto how other people perceive us. That's not to say that we're entirely in control of how other people see us, but we can take more control over what we believe is true of us or what we believe is false. It's like, is it, you know, ask yourself, is it true that, like, I feel misunderstood, okay? Is it Mm. true that no one understands me? Mm. Or is it instead true that I haven't made more of an attempt to make myself understood and to explain who I am and what my values are and how I want to be treated? Or is the truth that everyone understands you just fine and your perception is wrong? <laughs> or, like, or like your perception is like the, like the, is it something from within yourself that you're projecting yeah, that is what's yeah. making you feel misunderstood when actually what you want them to understand is what they're understanding. Sure. And like, is it an insecurity kind of thing? Or is it a like, like, or a trauma thing or like, whatever, like, is there something changing your perception of the situation? Like, for instance, I have PTSD, my entire life is trying to figure out what is an act, like, what's a perception of the situation that is like, more accurate to what's happening and what is my brain being like hey remember that thing that happened five years ago this is just like that yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so it's it's an it's an interesting like when you're talking about self-image self-concept it's also when it comes to your relation to other people because like your self-image your self-concept and your self-esteem are all like three different things um talk about that in communications all the time but like you know how much of it is like what you're perceiving about how people are perceiving you and how much of your own context is influencing that. Yeah. (laughs) And how much, um, like I, I know somebody who in suffering from trauma will often wish that there was an object, like I was saying earlier about the, like the whole database thing, like 
will wish that there was a source from which to draw a conclusion about objectively how much did that trauma affect me, affect me. Objectively, how much of my current mental state has been influenced by that trauma and how much of it is just how I would have ended up anyway. What I will say is that there is a little bit of an optimistic way to look at that, um, which is a like, the fun part is you're kind of always discovering that about yourself. Um, yeah. And it's not always a fun discovery, but like sometimes there are things where it's like, oh, wow, like that's a thing that I had no idea was connected to, you know, this thing that happened to me in the past. But now that I know that it is, I am so much more prepared for this situation in the future. Um, or like, I'm so much more prepared for X, Y, and Z. And it's, you're learning more about yourself. So even though it's really shitty that you don't know how much of it is like, what this thing happened to you, would you be the same person? Fact of the matter is that thing happened to you. Like mm -hmm. you experienced it in your subjective truth. You experienced that thing. So you get the fun part of discovering more about yourself, um, which sometimes sucks, but also... <laughs> It, discoveries it sucks, but it's are, fun. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know, fun isn't always a good thing. I guess I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's ex I don't know. I like learning about myself and being able to use things as like a learning experience, even if they suck. <laughs> um, I'm gonna title this episode. Is it true that fun is good? <laughs> <laughs> is it true that fun is good? Cutting down 1,000 trees by myself. <laughs> and that's our show. Black Market Therapy is a Dead and Mellow production. And to stay in touch with us, you can follow Black Market Therapy and Dead and Mellow Records on social media. You can also send any questions or comments to blackmarkettherapypodcast at gmail.com. And of course, a big thank you to Maddie Vespa for being a wonderful guest. If you'd like to follow her on social media, you can find her at Maddie Vespa Music on Facebook and Instagram and at Menage Miseria on TikTok. And we'll make sure to have all those links in the episode description. We'll be back in two weeks with our friend Adam Reed to talk about history and whether the state of our world in the past defines who we are in the present. Until then. <laughs>